Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. Certain job parameters like autonomy, a feeling that you're making a difference. These things are tremendously important in determining whether we live a normal lifespan or we die suddenly. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On this episode, I get to talk with practicing cardiologist and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Sandeep Jahar. Dr. Jahar got his PhD in experimental physics at Berkeley before studying medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. He is a regular guest on NPR, CNN, MSNBC, talking about issues related to the human side of medicine and being a doctor in a complex world. He's also a contributing essayist for The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and Slate Magazine. In this episode, we talk about his most recent book entitled Heart, A History, that also became a viral TED Talk on the metaphorical heart and its impact on the physical heart. We also hear his firsthand experience about pursuing excellence, the power of taking care of both your physical heart and emotions, and the effect that has on caring for others. Enjoy the show. Well, we have uh, Dr. Sandeep Jahar on the podcast today. Say hello, Sandeep. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. So excited. I've really enjoyed, you know, obviously people have heard about who you are at the beginning of the episode, but, and I was just telling you before we, we started this conversation, you are a very good writer. Thank and you. I've just really enjoyed diving into your books and, and really you're a, you're a master storyteller. And I want to I want to talk about that a little bit in the context of leadership. But first, I want to start with a quote that I, that I heard you say, and and, I, and you can push back if that's not exactly how you said it. But but I think it's a great way of kicking things off. Is you have this great quote that says, "Unhappy doctors make unhappy patients." And I know that I think I, I think you would say that doctors are also leaders, but certainly I think that applies b- more broadly to just doctors. It applies to leaders in general. But I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about where that quote came from and why that's so important for you and, and, and why that would be like an anchor quote for you in your journey of influence. Yeah. Uh, so that quote actually, I mean, is motivated by experiences early in my career. You know, I was ambivalent about becoming a doctor to be, hmm. to be honest. Hmm. I had many different interests, but my, my, uh, parents, especially my mother always wanted me to go to medical school, become a doctor. And, and so, you know, I eventually did. And when I got my first job, it was 19 years after I graduated from high school. Wow. So it was an incredibly long journey of training. Yeah. And I was ready to roll up my sleeves and, and you know, work hard, but also, you know, enjoy myself, you know, enjoy um, the fruits of the hard labor. And what I found early in my career was that many of my colleagues were just very dispirited hmm. uh, about medicine. So I'd go to the doctor's lounge and they'd be talking about, you know, what was wrong with medicine and, hmm. and what they were pointing at really fundamentally wasn't so much the loss of autonomy or the paperwork and you know, the usual things that we hear about, yeah. but it was really a more fundamental problem, which is almost like an existential problem hmm. that they as doctors could no longer function, practice medicine the way they always 
had aspired to when they were, you know, kids in some cases or, you know, in college or, or whatever. And this was a moral sort of insult that they just couldn't uh, accept. Hmm. And so, you know, I started thinking a lot about what was wrong with medicine, uh, especially early in my career. And, and I ended up writing a book called Doctored, The Disillusionment of an American Physician. And what I learned in the course of that, writing the book and just my early career was that, that it wasn't just the doctors who were unhappy, it was the patients. Hmm. They were rightfully complaining that they weren't getting you know, the, 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 the requisite care, attention that they deserved. I mean, you know, patients know when they're being shortchanged. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like when they're in the office, they know when your mind is elsewhere. Hmm. They know the difference between a five-minute visit and a 20, 25-minute visit. Hmm. They feel it. There was one particular incident where this patient of mine with congestive heart failure, I'm a cardiologist, had developed kidney failure, probably related to getting dye for a procedure. And he ended up on dialysis, but we were hoping it was temporary. So one day I walked into his room and I said, so did you speak to the the kidney doctor? What did he say? And he said, um, I asked him, how long am I going to stay on dialysis? And he said, um, probably forever. Wow. And, uh, and, and, I, and the patient said, you don't think my kidneys are going to come back? And the doctor said, this is the patient talking now. The doctor said to me, nah, I don't <laughs> think they're coming back. <laughs> and, and then he broke down. And he said, he said, that's the way he spoke to me. Just like that. Nah, I don't think they're coming back. And, and, you know, I know that doctor Mm. and he's a good doctor, Mm -hmm. but I imagine that, um, that he was dealing with his own issues, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the paperwork and, 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 and all the rest, no excuse, but that's where that comes from. Unhappy doctors don't have the time to spend with their patients. And that has Mm -hmm. a lot of ramifications, not just in terms of bedside manner, but also in terms of making diagnoses, Hmm. right? You know, you you need to spend time with a patient and talk to them and hear their story and examine them to make an accurate diagnosis. So what ends up happening more and more often in medicine is that because doctors don't have the time, they just order shotgun tests, right? Order a CAT scan for a headache, order Hmm. this, that, you know, and that ends up being costly. It ends up putting patients through unnecessary procedures. So, so that's where it comes from that, that when, when the caregivers are unhappy, um, those who require care end up being very unhappy as well. Yeah. Well, what strikes me is is that I think most people, whether they're any kind of leader, no matter what profession they're in, sometimes doesn't realize the effect that their psychological well-being has on the people that they're leading or serving or caring for. You know, like as executive coaches, it's an interesting thing to invite our coaches to notice their way of being and how that will be impacting the people that they're coaching or trying to serve. So I think that quote, correct me if I'm wrong, came from your second book, I think, Doctored. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And, and one of the things I thought was interesting about that book was the, the temptation to drift into... I think one person interviewing you called it a, a, a mercenary 
viewpoint. And, yeah. and, and I don't think that that's necessarily unique to doctors, you know, when you, when you start doing it for the money. And actually, before I keep going with that, could you talk a little bit about, is a lot of our, a lot, I know for you, this is obvious and in the doctor profession, this is kind of obvious, mm-hmm. but a lot of our people, they don't have a background in medicine. They don't really understand what the anatomy of a physician's practice looks like. Can you talk a little bit about some of the perverse incentives that don't guarantee that a doctor is motivated by that, but makes it harder for a doctor not to be motivated by money? Yeah. I mean, uh, so you know, I think a lot of it stems from our fee-for-service system hmm. where, you know, the more you do, the more tests you order, typically the more money you make. Now, there are a lot of reasons for over-testing. I would say that that commercialization or sort of uh, greed hmm. is a relatively small reason. There are some colleagues of mine, I know personally, who who practice that way. But I think for the most part, it's a lack of time Hmm. to do a proper workup. So you Mm -hmm. end up shotgunning tests. Hmm. General physicians very often call specialists because they don't feel comfortable thinking through a case on their own in large part because they just don't have the time. Yeah. Well, so, and isn't, aren't there adverse consequences? Like there's absolutely. a, you have a phrase for it, like because things, people can be so litigious, there's a fear of getting it wrong. And then absolutely. the fear of getting it wrong actually inflates the cost. And, and yeah, that's called uh, defensive medicine. I guess or, what it was, or, yeah. Yeah. But there, there are other terms, but what ends up happening is that there are too many doctors on a case and the more sort of dif- different problems a patient has, the more doctors descend. So I wrote in that book about a case I had of where a patient came into the hospital with some shortness of breath. And he was a little anemic, not terribly, but you know, a mm-hmm. little bit, meaning his blood count was a little low. What ended up happening before he left the hospital, he was seen by 19 specialists. Okay. Among cardiology, he was seen by three different cardiologists, hmm. seen by a heart failure doctor, who was me, a general cardiologist, and an electrophysiologist, you know, for consideration of a pacemaker. He left the hospital with, you know, a pacemaker, a bone marrow biopsy from a hematologist. He was evaluated by a nephrologist, a urologist for, you know, uh, various problems, none of which honestly, were that serious. And at the end of the day, well, at the end of really four weeks in the hospital, he left with appointments with 15 doctors, was still without a clear answer for what was wrong with him. He didn't feel any better. He was still short of breath. He's still a little anemic. You know, that's the kind, that's where medicine fails. That's the big fail in medicine today is, you know, American medicine is amazing when you have a problem like, I don't know, Ebola or something, mm. you know, something sort of esoteric. But if you have run of the mill, like diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, what, you know, uh, that what a lot of Americans have, what you need is proper coordinated care. You don't need hyper-specialized care. Mm. But the problem with American medicine is you apply hyper-specialized care to run of the mill problems. And that's where you end up with the kind of case I just described. You tell a story about how there was one case similar to that and there were all these specialists in the room and then there was like a nurse 
who wasn't a specialist. Can you can you finish that story for me? Like, do you, you remember that story? Um, I heard it one of your interviews. Absolutely, I remember that story because it was my dad. Oh my gosh! It was my dad who um, thought he was having a stroke. He had some numbness in his arm, so he was admitted to the hospital. Ended up with a whole slew of tests. The neurologist who saw him really, honestly, didn't do a proper exam. Ordered. CAT scan, MRI, you know, transcranial Dopplers, all the rest. Nothing showed up. Hmm. He ended up being discharged from the hospital with a with a provisional diagnosis of a stroke, was put on a blood thinner. Okay. Then he came back, I don't know, a few days later, thinking he had a stroke. Again, he was still having this numbness, was in the ER. Another neurologist starts getting him ready for another CAT scan. And I'm just there like just totally nonplussed. Hmm. And this nurse who was taking care of him took me aside. She's like, I don't know if I should mention this, but you know, he only gets this numbness when he turns his head like this. Hmm. And long story short, he just had a slip disc, hmm. just a basic herniated disc from all those years of uh, bending over, you know, down to look through a microscope. He was a scientist. And, 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 you know, and the neurologist still wanted to get the CAT scan. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So, so, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I know this podcast about leadership. I mean, I think uh, you're, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the psychological well-being of our leaders most definitely translates down into, you know, in, into who we train, mm. affects how their training experience, our caregiving experience, mm. uh, our collegial experience, all of it, you know, is is affected. Yeah, well, and I hear a few things there. And thank you for bringing it back to the initial question in terms of a, a doctor taking care of themselves psychologically. We're going to get into that later. And also just sometimes specialization can create blind spots rather than reveal blind spots. And it's helpful to have generalists and specialists interacting with each other. And, you know, even, even you know, honestly, uh, Sandeep, with our coaches, when we work with larger clients and we're coaching several people behind the scenes and confidentially, we're doing what the Mayo Clinic does. Like we're, we're cross-pollinating our perspectives with each other to be able to see what we're missing and to get a variety of perspectives. And, and like, it's nice to have specialists in the room, but sometimes it's nice to have a nurse in the room who's just noticing perhaps the obvious. And one thing I might say to our listeners is, are you creating a multifaceted perspective of yourself by talking to different experts. And then obviously that can get out of hand when, when you've got 19 specialists who all have their favorite thing to, to prescribe and, and those types of things. But I want to rewind just for a second because you had some great things that you said at the very beginning. I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you were born in India, then you moved to Southern California. Is that correct? That's right. And then, and your parents... Because they, they because they love you, and they wanted to see you be successful in this new country, they they strongly encouraged you to pursue medicine. You and your siblings, is that right? That's correct. And they and they what was the, what was the quote that they had? Like, uh, oh, there there are a couple of different ones. What my my father, who was a scientist, always used to say, "Non science is nonsense." <laughs> so that was that kind of. Uh, you know that 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 was the the perspective that that uh, I grew up with. My mother, on the other hand, used to say, "I want you to become a doctor so that people will stand when you walk into a room." Wow! <laughs> you know? Because you know, a lot of us now forget doctors were at a, on a very high pedestal mm. for so much of you know 
American history. I mean, really, you yeah. know, in the mid part of the 20th century, with all the Im- amazing medical advances, the 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 uh, the prolongation of life. I mean, longevity increased from 65 years to 71 years, six years on average, in a generation, and a lot of that was due to medical advances. Yeah, and, and, and so doctors really were rewarded with a lot of prestige and respect. And so it was from that that my mother was thinking, oh, you know, you, you, I want you to have that. Now, how, how was that for you? Because I feel like, and just to, do, to reference briefly what we, what we learned about you at the beginning, uh, before the episode started, you know, you, you, you have done, you've kind of had an amazing career so far. You went to Berkeley and that's no joke. And, but you didn't study medicine though. What did you study? I studied physics. Yeah. And wasn't it yeah. like, wasn't it experimental physics or theoretical physics or? Yeah, I was experimental physics. And, uh, you know, that sort of gives you an inkling or maybe the listeners an inkling of the twisted home environment I grew up in where rebellion was saying no to a career in medicine and then going into experimental physics. But you, that that's awesome. Uh, yeah. And I do think because some of our listeners are a little younger and like my nephews are teenagers and I, I like to imagine that they listen to this too. Yeah, I, I like the idea that when you rebel, you still rebel with excellence. Yeah, you know, I think there's something right. to that. Like if we could only teach a generation of young people, hey, rebel all you want to, but just yeah, be excellent right. at whatever it is you rebel into. Right, right, right. You know, <laughs> but so, so then, so you, but then you, you were like, that's not my thing. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go into medicine instead. Yeah. Can you talk about what that transition was like? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's important to be flexible in your career path. I certainly have been. I thought I wanted to be a physicist. I realized pretty early on that I wasn't going to be the best. Hmm. You know, I wasn't going to, you know, whatever, you know, win a Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. You know, I just didn't have that mindset. That How did you know that? You know, I just, you know, people in physics are so smart. Hmm. Uh, they are ridiculously smart. And... People, uh, you know, the fellow students at Berkeley. I mean, they were they were brilliant, and they they saw things that I couldn't see, and mm. they also had a commitment mm. to physics, engineering, math, quantitative science. That you know, that I, I was always playing catch up, and and I realized, you know, I, I probably, well, I might have stayed in physics, but then, um, and I wrote about this in my first book called Intern my girlfriend got sick with a disease called lupus. Mm. And so I started reading up on lupus, read everything I could, talked to doctors, read journals, you know. And what I ended up learning is that there was no cure. There was really no really great treatment back then. And to me, that was just such a surprise, you know, working Mm. in a field like physics where so much had been figured out. Mm. And, you know, you apply basic principles and you can solve so many different problems. And here was this problem that affected, you know, so many young women, uh, young, middle-aged, older women, mm-hmm. women for the most part in, in the, with this particular disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just had no clue. Hmm. Uh, medicine had no clue. And and so in the course of trying, you know, speaking to doctors, whatever, I just got interested in medicine. And, you know, the other main sort of big motivation was that, um, and I wrote about this in my 
in my most recent book, Heart, mm-hmm. that my grandfather died uh, of a heart attack. And he died uh, when he was in his early 50s. He died in the presence of my father, who was only 14 years, 13 years old. Hmm. They were having lunch together. Hmm. And like many people who've witnessed the sudden death of a loved one, hmm. my, my dad never got over it. Never. Yeah. yeah. His whole life. And, and his grief, his ongoing grief, witnessing his beloved father dying, colored our home. And, and, and so for a long time when I was a kid, I thought, you know, yeah, I would probably go into medicine because I was so interested in, in, in what had happened to my grandfather, what implications it had on my own father, on me. And I was just fascinated by the human heart. Yeah. And, and, uh, and eventually went into medicine and, 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 and became a cardiologist. Well, you know, so much of your work, I think, is about the emotional side of medicine. And and I think you bring a humanity to that conversation, which I really appreciate and resonate with. One thing I want to highlight for our audience, there is a theme of, and I don't know know if this is like an immigrant mindset, but there is a theme of like the best. You know, so you're, you're studying experimental physics at Berkeley. You're studying one of the most sophisticated fields at one of the country's best schools. And you had this moment where you're like, I don't know if I can be the best at this. And then, you know, through your, your compassion for your girlfriend and your curiosity led you into to medicine. But then it wasn't just like, you know, I'm imagining like in, in doctor world, there's, you know, there's still like tiers of excellence and those types of things. And you could have gone for like the vanilla. You could have gone mm-hmm. for like middle of the road. Uh, I imagine that cardiology is not <laughs> vanilla, not middle of the road. What like... What is it you think about you that prompts you to continue? And and by the way, you didn't just become a cardiologist. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you became like the head of your. Uh, finish that sentence because I don't have that. That like. Yeah, I, I so I I uh, studied cardiology, but then I ended up uh, specializing mm-hmm. in heart failure. Mm-hmm. Trained at some of the best schools, mm-hmm. you know, in 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 New York City, and and then ended up as the director of a, of a heart failure program at a large teaching hospital mm-hmm. in Long Island. But, you know, I, I mean, I think some of it, that drive mm-hmm. was instilled by my parents. Some of it, I think, was healthy. Maybe some of it was a little unhealthy, you know, like <laughs> trying to get my father's approval yeah. by, you know, doing well. Some of it is the immigrant mindset of, you know, you have to struggle to make it in this country mm-hmm. and you better work really hard. My dad used to say they'll take, you know, an American, mm-hmm. a white American, he would mm-hmm. actually say, mm-hmm. um, uh, unless you're three times as good. I said three times as good. Yeah. I've yeah. heard that and before. That's, yeah. that, that was his, uh, his, his mantra always. So, so I think some of that, uh, probably translated into my, you know, ambition mm-hmm. to work hard. I appreciate you sharing that. And I think about that a lot, and I've heard variations of that story before, especially from an from an ethnicity standpoint. You know, like you have to be one, one of my friends is a consultant from Great Britain. She's a, a black woman from Great Britain, and mm-hmm. she's, her parent, her mom, single single family mom, told her, "Hey, man, like you gotta, you're gonna have to be twice as good, three times as good in order to have a moment." And obviously, in some ways, that's a burden. But also, like I think about, you know, if I have kids someday, I kind of want to teach them that without the you have to in order to get seen or heard. But just more like if you're gonna do something, you might as well be three times better than. Yeah, like that's not a bad. You may not hit it, but that's not a bad goal to aim for. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. you seek to make a dent in the world, and I think that you're a success story 
in that sense. And obviously there can be some, some pain associated with that or just some dysfunction or, you know, I definitely know what it's like to want to get my parents to like me and those types of things. Yeah, yeah. But I think the gift that you've become to the world because of that pursuit is, uh, I guess I'll put words in your mouth. To me, it seems worth it. Like, would you rather had a less of a drive to get your dad to like you and to accomplish less? Or do you think it's, a, or do you think it has to be one or the other? No, I mean, I think, uh, I think the drive to get him to, accept me, love me. Uh, I mean, he loved me anyway, yeah, right? But, yeah. but there is always that insecurity we all have uh-huh. to that you want, you know, the people who are most important to you to, you know, feel certain, you know, you sort of ascribe motivations to them that maybe they don't have, maybe they're not, un- you know, they're unaware of. I mean, my, my dad, you know, I, I would do well in school and and, you know, every time I got, I don't know, straight A's or something, mm-hmm. you know, he'd be just overjoyed, right? Huh. Nowadays, yeah. we hear, at least, you know, I have two kids and I, I did, I've done some reading. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, I hear that, you know, it's important not to be too overjoyed when your kids get good <laughs> grades because you yeah. don't want them to associate good getting good grades with acceptance by their parents. Yeah. I don't really understand that. I mean, it's just yeah. not, I, I, well, I understand it. I understand yes. the, 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 it in theory, but um, I think we might be overthinking it a little bit uh, on, you know, so, you know, in any case, uh, whatever the reason, you know, it was, it was always really important to me to, to, to strive and, and, and to try to be excellent. And, um, and, and unfortunately I picked a field like medicine where, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there, there, there's a, there's a wide spectrum of, of, uh, talent and, and ability to achieve, you know, it's not such a circumscribed field, you know, you can do very broad. You can do many things. You can specialize, you can hyper-specialize, um, and you can hyper-specialize and then also have an avocation like writing or, or I, you know, I know doctors who do, you know, architecture on the side, They, they do, they do public policy on the side. They have businesses, you know, so, you know, there, there's sort of this perception that medicine only takes these sort of single-minded individuals who just are, you know, were born saying, call me doctor. That's mm. not the case. Uh, you know, yes, very sing- a lot of single-minded devotion to medicine, but there's also, I think, more and more a sense of, you know, I want the career to serve me and my ambitions and my um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, like life satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. What if one call could change what you once thought was impossible into a reality? Novus Global is offering you an exploration call with one of their world-class coaches to explore what you as a leader and your team are capable of. Novus Global is an elite executive coaching firm that works with multi-billion dollar companies, professional athletes, nonprofit leaders in faith and government, all to create teams, companies, and communities that go beyond high performance. Book your call right now, just go to novus.global forward slash now. That's interesting because I, be, I bet you the field of medicine has a higher proportion of polymaths than other fields probably do because it lends itself towards attracting people who want to explore as much, to be as curious about everything in life as humanly possible. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Uh, 
you know, people very often ask me, why are there so many like good writers who are doctors? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we learn from the very beginning to interview mm-hmm. patients, to put a, an incredible importance on getting the story right. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, history, his story, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's drummed into us, I think very correctly, that most of diagnoses are made by when you get the story right. The patient will tell you what's wrong with them. You don't have to shotgun tests. Yeah. yeah. But you have to listen. You have to be perceptive. You have to pick up on clues and feelings. That's also what makes a good writer. Yeah. That's, Sandeep, that's a powerful insight that I'm sure is obvious to doctors that might be lost on other people. Yeah. Like you, and I want to, I want to make sure I hear, heard you. Like, I mean, I may ask you to say it again. Like patients will tell you, like you have to get the story. A big part of health is getting the story right. Absolutely. We learn at a very early stage in our careers that history taking is the single most important skill that a physician can have. It's it's way more important than than examination skills, physical examination skills. Hmm. It's more important than um, procedural skills, you know, knowing how to put in a catheter or an IV or, you know, suture, a wound. Those, all those things are important. But if you want to, to figure out what's wrong with a patient, and ultimately that's why people come to you. Yeah. You need to get the story right. I would imagine part of getting the story right is you got to know which questions to ask. Yes. Right. Cause Absolutely. if you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong story. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm also thinking that when you're listening to like, I'm your patient, and I'm telling you my story, you know what to listen for more than I know what to share. Yeah. Yeah. So I think history taking is, it involves all those sort of sub skills, hmm. listening, knowing when to go deeper and patience, right? Hmm. That's one of the reasons why I think many doctors we're seeing are, are, doing great things in media or in writing, for example, because writing also requires a lot of patience. You know, if you don't have the patience, you're going to end up not getting the story right, and you're going to end up almost definitely with an unhappy patient, right? You know, a lot of doctors, I mean, studies have shown, will interrupt a patient within 16 seconds of them speaking. So you ask them, hey, so, you know, Mr. Jones, why did you come into the hospital? Or why, why are you here in my office? Like, what's bothering you? They start talking. You know, I mean, you can count huh. 16 seconds. You know, it's it's pretty short, you know, when someone's telling you, like, what's bothering them. Uh, <laughs> and, but, uh, so, so that's, you know, th- th- that, that has some utility because, you know, you, there are certain questions you want to, have answered and right. you you need to be directive in some form. Right. But at the same time, I think what I try to do much more in my practice now is let the patient speak. Mm. You know, you end up, you think that you're going to end up wasting time having them talk about things that aren't, don't seem relevant. But at the end of the day, I've discovered over and over in my practice that what seems like time wasted is really time very well spent. Because you hear from the patients what's bothering them. You know, if you interrupt them and you sort of get the interview to go down a certain 
way, you may end up solving the wrong problem. Mm. And I know colleagues who tell me all the time, and I've experienced it myself very, very frequently. You know, you have you put your hand on the doorknob and you're getting ready to leave, and the patient says, Oh, but wait a minute. And then they tell you really what was the thing. The, the thing. Exactly. Yeah. God, the, the parallels between that and coaching are insane. Like I can't tell you when we train coaches how often we see a person come and they they pre-diagnose or they they think that they know what's going on and they all their questions are seen through that filter and so they guide the client through that and it's it's you know it's the it's not the first answer that's oftentimes the best answer it's the meandering and the third and fourth and fifth yeah. answer which is that's where the gold was and yeah. and the, and the, you're right the patients and I like what you said you know it's not just time. It feels like time wasted, and you, and you said time well invested. I think, but I would also yeah. say time saved. Yes, because it lets you move faster. It lets you actually solve the problem faster. And I wonder, you know, how often as leaders we come in and we think we already know what the problem is, versus listening just a little bit longer to see if there's something deeper going on that starts to emerge that we can solve, and that's like the real thing versus the superficial thing that we're trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't pretend to be. Um, you know, have great insight into business leadership or, or entrepreneurship, but I do have friends who do it. And I have friends who are healthcare leaders who run insurance companies, mm -hmm. who are heads of departments. And I'd say, you know, if I were to ask them, what is the single most important skill? They'll say it's listening. Mm -hmm. You know, it, too often, I think when we're in meetings and, you know, we want to be heard, we want to yeah. speak up. Uh, what I hear from you know, people who know a lot more about this than I do is 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 listening is is so much more important than than articulation. Yeah, I'm going to push back a little bit on you not being like a leader or business leadership, and I get that. But I mean, doctors run their own practices and they understand yeah. how things work. And also, yeah. leadership is influence. And you've written yeah. books that have been read by millions. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's not insignificant. And your books, I think, were uh, I don't know if this was on purpose or not, but in some ways kind of exposing and giving permission for the world of medicine to have a different kind of conversation yeah. that they were having privately, but all of a sudden it became public. So so I do think you have something to say. And, and I, I wanted to go back to that a little bit because a big part of influence is listening, but also it's speaking and storytelling and persuasion. Mm -hmm. And you, you are an excellent storyteller. I'd love to hear a little bit about, have you always been a good storyteller? Did you did you have to learn how to be a good storyteller? Did you take classes? Like, how, how has that evolved to where you're a cardiologist, but then you become a New York Times bestselling storyteller? <laughs> well, I appreciate uh, the kind words. I mean, I was always really interested in stories, books when I was when I was a kid, mm -hmm. but you know, I didn't really know how I could apply that skill. Uh, of storytelling in in a career, you know, um, you know, my my dad, as I mentioned, was yep. you know hardcore scientist. Non science is nonsense, <laughs> that sort of thing. And so, but you know, you know, even within science, we know that it's so important to connect facts and discoveries in a narrative to get people to understand what you're what you're doing, to get people <laughs> to to take seriously what you're doing. So I figured, you know, that. I would eventually uh, go into science and and you know use some of the storytelling to you know present papers at conferences or, or or whatever. Then you know I told you that my my girlfriend got sick and I mm -hmm. 
decided to apply to medical school. The summer before I went to medical school, I basically had a summer off mm -hmm. and I decided to sort of scratch this itch I'd had for a long time because I'd always really been interested in journalism. And so I came across really serendipitously a advertisement for a science journalism fellowship called the Mass Media Fellowship and mm -hmm. uh, sponsored by the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS. And, uh, and I sort of on a lark, I applied and I got it and they sent me to Time Magazine in Washington, <laughs> D.C. Yeah. And, and it was that experience that really got the engine going in terms of starting to write. Was it the experience of, were you writing a lot while you were uh, essentially an intern at Time or was it being around world-class storytellers? Like what was it about being there that really lit that part of you up? I think it was it was more being around people mm. who were really good at their jobs mm -hmm. and he was making contacts, but it was just, you know, just being part of that world. You know, I read books about how to be a journalist and, and mm. you know, that summer, you know, so just being there, being in that environment, I think was really, was really positive uh, for me. And so I, I ended up leaving that fellowship and I went to medical school and before I left, I got some names of journalists I could call on in the future. Mm -hmm. I got a name at the New York Times in my first year of medical school. Again, sort of just randomly, I picked up the phone and called this uh, this journalist. I really had no idea who he was. Mm -hmm. it turns out he was really important. He was the <laughs> national political editor, but he turned out, he became the first African-American executive editor at the New York Times. He was a gentleman named Gerald Boyd. Mm -hmm. So I called him up one afternoon and, uh, and he was sort of like, uh, like, who are you? You know? <laughs> uh, and, and, and I said, Oh, you know, I got your name from, you know, time, you know, I was at time magazine, blah, blah, blah. And he was just sort of in the process of blowing me off as he should have. Cause yeah. I, uh, and, and then it turned out that I went to Washington university in St. Louis for medical school. It mm -hmm. turned out he was from St. Louis. Hmm. He asked me where I was from. Where I was, where, where I was actually, where I was studying, and then it turned out not only was he from St. Louis, but he grew up on the street that I was living on. Wow! At the time. And so that, so suddenly the whole tone of the conversation changed. Yeah, and he was like, "Listen, you know, I had a really nice time talking to you. Why don't you give me a call next time you're in New York? We'll meet for coffee." Nice. So. So I did as any aspiring journalist would do. I hung up yeah. the phone, called up American Airlines, and I booked a flight to New York. Yeah. And I went there, I think maybe two weeks later, and I met with him. I can't say he was as nice when I met with him in person as he was on the phone. He's probably he surprised at the speed at which you, you took him up on his offer. Oh, yeah. I was like, no, no, I'm not going to lose this. You know, because, you know, uh, uh, and I, I, I went... I remember I walked into his office and uh, I, they, they took me into his office. I was waiting there and he walks in and he says, I have five minutes. What do you want? That's great. And, uh, and I was just like, ah, la, la, la. and yeah. you know, I can't say the interview, whatever it was, uh, went very well, but, um, but he did say, look, kid, you know, you came all the way out here. Let me do you a favor and introduce you to one of our science journalists. And it was, that meeting, that introduction that got me to start writing, 
I, I would send my clips to the New York Times. They didn't publish any of them, but it was just, I got my name in there. And then eventually they agreed to send me to Louisiana for a piece on a leprosy hospital. Hmm. And, and I did that and they published, that was my first piece I published in 1998. And then, and then it, that sort of greased the wheels and, and, and that's how it all started. So, you know, I like to tell students who ask me, how did you get into writing? How, you know, yeah. is, look, you need to be a little stupid. Hmm. Like if, if I knew then what I know now, I never would have called this guy. <laughs> no way. You know, uh, you know, he was way too up up there in the in 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 the New York Times masthead I was just some kid but uh you know you got to be a little stupid yeah. meaning you have to take risks yeah and uh and also you you have you have to count on serendipity and re mm -hmm. recognize when it happens and for in this particular case the serendipity was he he grew up in St. Louis yeah i mean who could write that story i mean he yeah. would have completely blown me off if I didn't happen to be calling from St. Louis. So things like that happen. And yeah. it really changed the trajectory of my career. And you don't get the serendipity really without the risk. Yes. You know, they're they're inextricably linked. The other thing that I want to highlight of your story that I that I start to see as a pattern as we interview different people who are extraordinary in their in their in their lives and their their trade is you gave yourself permission to put yourself around the best. And I can't tell you how many leaders miss out on so much growth for themselves because they refuse to to put them. Especially when you're older, you you, you kind of have ego. That when you're young, you're just happy to be there. But you know, yeah. to, to continue to put yourself around the best, to study the best, to expose yourself to the best, and then because I gave you a little bit of street cred, if you hadn't have gone to time, maybe he wouldn't have taken your call. Absolutely. You know, so each one of those things continues to build, and then of course, yeah. then the, the, I think as you you say, the rest is history. Yeah, And I think there's some powerful tips there for people who are trying to get to the next level of the video game for themselves. And I love how you, as soon as he gave you a window, <laughs> you hopped on a plane. That's awesome. You know, so I wonder what opportunities we sit on rather than just like leaning in. And so true. there's, I want to pivot into, a, 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 there's a question on the horizon, bear with me. But, you know, essentially when you got there, he rejected you. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, I'm not going to give you my time. But in the rejection... He introduced you to somebody else. There was a silver lining. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. And there's there's a, a tweet that you did a f several months ago about um, your book being in the Harvard uh, <laughs> bookstore, <laughs> and I would love for you to tell our audience because you know it's easy when we hear people's stories to think oh, it was always up and to the right. You know, like he had great parents who put a drive in him, and he went to great school, and then he's like, oh, I think I'll do this really hard thing, and then I did, and then I think I'll apply for this time thing, and then I did, and yeah. you know, but but it's not like everyone says yes to you. No, not at all. I mean, I've experienced <laughs> plenty of rejection. So, you know, the probably the one institution that's rejected me the most is Harvard. <laughs> so, so I, you know, in addition to my many accomplishments, hmm. one of my greatest is that I am the living person who's probably been rejected by Harvard the most. <laughs> so I applied for college. And then, you know, I studied physics. Mm -hmm. For a while, I thought I was going to go to, uh, the, I, I ended up applying to physics graduate school. Just to give you an idea, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to belabor the story, but <laughs> I applied to physics graduate school. Mm -hmm. I got into MIT, Caltech, Stanford, Berkeley, uh, University of Chicago, and Columbia. Hmm. No big deal. Uh, 
the one school I didn't get into was Harvard. <laughs> so anyway, that's fine. Um, yeah. And then I ended up starting with physics graduate school. At the time, I also applied to law school because, you know, when you don't really know exactly what you're going to do, and, and I was sort of off-put by physics, I wasn't sure, I'd apply to law school. Why not? I, you know, again, I got into Columbia, for example. Yeah. Didn't get into Harvard. So <laughs> then I applied to medical school. Didn't get into Harvard. Got into WashU, didn't get into Harvard. Went to, uh, then it was uh, residency and fellowship. So, I mean... It was over and over and over again. And so the tweet was about this guy I know uh, on, on Twitter sent me a picture of my latest book, Heart, A History, in the Harvard bookstore. <laughs> and I said, you know, I've been rejected so many times. So seeing this book at the Harvard bookstore, I just can't but put a smile on my face. Yeah, I love that. And for our listeners, I think about this a lot and you're living proof of it. If you're not getting rejected, you're probably not really leaning into what you're capable of. And yeah. I love that you, honestly, man, one of my biggest regrets is I never even applied to Ivy League schools. It didn't even cross my mind, yeah. you know. And and I think there's something beautiful of applying and getting rejected, and just being the kind of person who's okay with that. And the kind of person who gets rejected by Harvard seven times is the kind of person who's going to have a book in Harvard's bookstore. I think is a really <laughs> it's a really yeah. beautiful way to live. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, we, we're we we self limit. There's no question yes. about that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, we do it in in every sphere. You know, younger days, you walk up to someone who you want to meet, you want to talk to, and you, you're afraid. You're afraid of yeah. getting rejected. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I mean, I think it's 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 important to 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 take risks, and and I think that's one of the reasons why you know it's really good to be young, right? Hmm. Because when you're young, you're not as encumbered by the shoulds, you know, in, in, in life, you know, or really the should nots, you know, you shouldn't, you know, make that phone call, you know, you're, you're not experienced enough. You're, you're not, you know, the, you're, you're going to make a fool of yourself. It's okay to make a fool of yourself. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of young people I know are, are, are willing to do that. And if they're not, they should be willing to do that. Yeah, you bet. And honestly, a lot of, a big part of our work with our clients is inviting them and their teams into being young again, Mm. What are some juicy failures, not fatal failures, you know, and yeah. not, not that it's going to ruin your career or anything, but like, what are some healthy failures you can lean into? One of the questions we invite people into is what's something that's, that's worth going after that even if you fail, you'll be glad you did it. And yeah. there's a really beautiful way around that. One last set of questions and then I'll let you go. And you've been more than generous with your time because I do want to talk about your most recent book, especially because I think that it is important to leaders and to, to our own emotional management and the physiological yeah. connection there. If you don't mind, I'd like to go back to the story of your grandfather passing yeah. because I think that's a, a connecting point to, yeah. to that. You mind telling... You, you, I'm glad you did. You left out some, some pertinent details yeah. of that story. You mind retelling that and including those details as we, as we transition? Sure. Yeah. No, my, my grandfather was in his early fifties. He lived in a rural part of India. He owned a, a tiny shop and he went one day to the shop to work. He was moving some sacks of grain and a, a snake bit him. He didn't know what kind of snake it was and snake bite was fairly common in India. So he didn't really make too much of it. He went uh, home and by most accounts, he was okay. I mean, he was doing all right. He started having lunch, and then some neighbors who had gotten a snake charmer 
<laughs> to go into the store. The snake's armor had killed the snake hmm. and they brought the snake in and it was a black cobra, hmm. poisonous snake. And my grandfather took one look at it and said, oh, how can I survive this? Hmm. And very soon he slumped to the floor and went unconscious and he died. Now, the family thought he had died of a snake bite. So when an ambulance came, they insisted that they take my grandfather, who had actually was already almost like, I mean, he had been dead for, for I think, more than an hour. They insisted they take my grandfather to the hospital and the snake. And the doctor there said, no, it wasn't a snake bite. That wouldn't have killed him so quickly. It was hmm. a heart attack. Hmm. He had a heart attack from just looking at the snake and panicking that, you know, how am I going to survive this? I have the whole fa I have a family. My, my, my father, his son, was 13, almost 14 at the time, and he was getting ready to, you know, graduate from school and, and there was there's was so much going on and and so he just you know so one of the themes i explore in the book uh heart a history actually one of the major themes is how the emotions affect our heart mm -hmm. our hearts our physical heart our physical heart and I, I i did ted talk on this which sort of explores this effect of the emotions we have this sense that when we have emotional upset you know we get kind of uh you know, heaviness in the, in, in the, in the chest. I think that's one of the reasons why we call it heartbreak, but who would have thought that those emotions can actually result in physical changes in the heart shape. Hmm. But now we know that to be indisputably true. There's a condition called the broken heart syndrome, where in situations of extreme emotional upset, such as after a breakup, romantic breakup or the death of a loved one, the heart will actually physically change into a very peculiar shape, hmm. which is the shape of a Japanese pot called a takasubo. And so the condition, broken heart syndrome, is also called takasubo cardiomyopathy. Hmm. But the, the heart physically changes shape. And I've seen patients you know, who are coming off the death of a spouse or, a, you know, some uh, other great emotional upset who go into congestive heart failure, in some cases actually die. Although in, in broken heart syndrome, very often it's reversible. And when the emotional sort of upset goes away, the heart bounces back and actually returns to a more normal shape. But in the interim, there are cases where patients develop congestive heart failure, life-threatening arrhythmias, and even death. One of the themes of the book is how our emotions affect our hearts. And, and you know, I explore the broken heart syndrome, which is really a manifestation of the acute effect of stress. But I also examine things like chronic effects of emotional upset. You know, you're working with a particularly difficult coworker or you're in a bad relationship and it's those chronic small insults over time that can cause tremendous effects on the heart, can cause coronary artery disease and you know many other problems. And, and this has been explored in, in, in many studies. One of them is a series of studies called the Whitehall 
studies that were done by Sir Michael Marmot uh, in, in England. And what the Whitehall study showed is that in the British civil service, the rate of mortality increases in a stepwise fashion as you go down the civil service hierarchy. Hmm. So, you know, people at the top have the lowest death risk. People at the bottom, like messengers and porters, have the highest death, death risk. Now, they have corrected for all sorts of factors, you know, serum cholesterol, blood pressure, cigarettes smoked, alcohol consumption, so on. Yeah. And what they concluded is that it's the um, certain job parameters like autonomy, hmm. a feeling that you're making a difference. These things are tremendously important in determining whether we live a normal lifespan or yeah. we die suddenly or we die prematurely. Yeah. You know? So chronic stress, as evidenced by the Whitehall studies, acute stress, as evidenced by broken heart syndrome, these are things that have tremendous effects on the heart. I mean, it's, it's it, and so one of the things I explore in, in the book is, you know, for the longest time, like the Greeks used to say, the heart contains the emotions, right? Hmm. We've always had this sense that the heart is the locus of courage or love. You know, there's a reason for all that. I think that that we're learning today in modern medicine that the ancients were right. Hmm. That, you know, even if the heart is not, doesn't contain our emotions, it's dr dramatically affected by our emotions. And we're learning this more and more. And that's really one of the major themes of the book. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're out of time. That's a fantastic teaser. It's an excellent book. I really enjoyed it. And as a, as a close, I think that's a great place to end because, you know, talking about how your emotional health has a profound impact on your physiological health, which is just another way of saying when doctors are unhappy, patients will be unhappy. And so for our listeners today, just to be thinking about, because well, we, we kind of jumped all over and I really enjoyed the conversation and, and I'll, I'll probably bother you to see if you ever want to come on again because there's like a bunch of questions we didn't get to. But the, the idea of what does it look like for you to take your emotional health seriously, I highly recommend checking out uh, Sandeep's books. His TED Talk's very good. There's a lot of content out there that I recommend people check out around him. There's a salon interview that I listened to where he talks about the importance of community and those types of things. And then Sandeep, for us to... Obviously, you can get your books wherever books are sold. Uh, how can we stay connected to you? There's a few ways that you, I think you have out there where we can continue the relationship. Yeah, no, I mean, people can come to my website, uh, sandeepjohar.com or um, just, you know, you can follow me on Twitter um, at sjohar. Yeah. At uh, S J A U H A R. So, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and, you know, DM me, you know, if you have questions or I like to talk about this stuff. Yeah. And you are very active on Twitter and I appreciate that. And your website's fantastic. And I don't mean that just aesthetically. You've yeah. done a really great job of accumulating a lot of um, resources for people. And I'll, honestly, as a close to for you, I think that speaks to your act of service. You know, sometimes websites and things are just like promotions. But it seems as if you and your team have done a, a, like you're not just putting stuff out there, you're creating resources to help people. So if you're listening to this and you're curious more about medicine, if you're curious about uh, Sandeep, especially recently with COVID, does a lot of kind of op-eds around COVID and how doctors are handling it. And he he's both sympathetic and challenging depending on what article you read. And I appreciate the balance of that for you. And and there's a lot of stuff there. If you're, if you're thinking about pre-med or if you're an internist, you're listening to this, you've probably frankly already heard of, but they're, they're great resources there too. So check him out. And Sandeep, thank you so much for, for spending time with us. I really enjoyed it. That was great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Have a good day. 
Thanks so much. All right, we have a few more things to let you know about before you go. First, podcast reviews really help us serve more people. So if this podcast is helpful for you, we'd love your help to get it into the hands of as many leaders as possible. Please leave us a review, even if it's not five stars. And if you really want to go the extra mile, let us know what you'd like to hear about more of or what you think we could do better to serve you and the people that you care about. We drop new episodes every week, so subscribe and watch us continue to learn to create resources that serve you powerfully. Speaking of resources, we have a lot online and they're all free. We have free assessments, educational videos, articles from sources like Fast Company written by our coaches and clients, all designed to help you use our tools in your everyday life and leadership. To dive into the free treasure trove of goodies we have for you, go to novus.global and then click on resources. Some of you have been listening for a while and you haven't yet taken that next step to hire a coach. This is your time. I can't tell you how often I've heard from hundreds of clients around the world that they wish they would have talked to us sooner. If you have a sense that you're capable of more, we would be thrilled to explore what coaching could do for you and those you influence. To start that journey, simply email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. You also might be listening to this and maybe you want to be a coach or maybe you already are a coach and you want to build a six or seven figure practice coaching people you love in a way that brings life to you and your clients. Well, that's why we created the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. It is an in-depth coaching apprenticeship designed to help you create the coaching practice of your dreams. The first step in exploring that is simple. Just go to www.mp.institute. That's www.mp, as in metaperformance.institute. And we have free assessments to help you see what kind of training you'd need to create a meta-performing coaching practice the way our coaches do at Novus Global. Head on over today. And finally, and for some of you, this will be the most important part. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer and Jeremy Davidson as editor and audio engineer. We love working with these guys. To find out more about how to create a podcast for you and your business, check them out at rainbowcreative.co. Thank you so much for listening. We love making these for you. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.